Let's turn in God's Word this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 24. We read this in connection with Lord's Day 38, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 2 Samuel 24, and again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God, thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aror on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad and toward Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadji. And they came to Dan Jaan and about to Zidon. And came to the stronghold of Tyre, and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah, even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. And there were in Israel... 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant For I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or... Wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies, while they pursue thee? Or, that there be three days' pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arana, the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people, and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. 
And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arana said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arana said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arana, as a king, give unto the king. And Arana said unto the king, The Lord thy God, accept thee. And the king said unto Arana, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant words. May God add his blessing upon the reading of the Holy Scriptures. It's on the basis of this text and many others that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 38. What doth God require in the fourth commandment? First, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained, and that I, especially on the Sabbath, that is, on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God to hear his word, to use the sacraments, publicly to call upon the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. Secondly, that all the days of my life I, <clears throat> I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Holy Spirit in me, and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the order of the answer that the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism give is noteworthy. The order that they give in answering the question about what God requires in the fourth commandment is, first, they say, that the ministry of the gospel and the schools be maintained. And then following that, it says that I, especially on the Sabbath, on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God to hear his word, to use the sacraments, to call upon the Lord, and contribute to the relief of the poor. This order, I say, is noteworthy, interesting, that they would order it that way. They do not say, what does God require of us in the fourth commandment? They do not begin their answer by, first of all, saying that you go to church on Sunday, that you publicly call upon the name of the Lord that you contribute to the relief of the poor, and following that, then that you maintain 
the church and schools. And the schools here is a reference to the seminary schools that would support or provide ministers for the churches. It doesn't put it in that order. We might expect that. We might think that if I'm considering what is required of me on the Sabbath day, that the very first thing that I would say is that I go to church, that I frequent the house of God. And then after having established that point up front, that I go to God's house on the Sabbath day in order to call upon the name of the Lord, that then following from that truth, then there is the truth of maintenance of the church and the schools, the seminary. But the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, with good wisdom, put it in the order that they did. There's a logical order here. If one does not maintain the church and the schools, there is no church to go to. If one does not give money to the church and support the church and assist the church, then there is no publicly calling upon the name of the Lord. And so there is here a logical order that the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism teach us of. But I believe it's more than just a logical order. They're not just setting forth, first you must give and then you come to church. But they're teaching us something here about the nature of worship. Worship is not first and foremost about me and about what I get out of a worship service. The Sabbath day is not about my wants, my desires, my needs being satisfied. But worship is about God. Giving unto God glory, honor, praise that is due to His holy name. The writers of the Heidelberg Catechism, understanding that truth, that worship is not first and foremost about me and about my wants, but it's about God, begin this answer by teaching us about giving. What does God require on the Sabbath day? that we maintain the church and the schools and then call upon God's name, worship Him in church. Sabbath worship. We'll see, first of all, what God requires of us in this commandment. Secondly, we'll see that this is costly, worshiping God. And third, we'll see that this is joyful Sabbath worship, required, costly, joyful. Before we look at what is the requirement of the fourth commandment, let's do as we have been in the previous weeks, looking at the commandments. Let's see what is the foundational truth behind this fourth commandment. Why is it that God came unto Moses on Mount Sinai And God gave this fourth commandment unto Moses and to all of Israel, saying, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This morning we emphasize especially two truths that are the foundation or the basis for this fourth commandment. The first basis of this commandment is the fact that God created all things in sickness. 24-hour days, and then God rested on the seventh day. If we are entering into the room, and the banner over this room is the fourth commandment, what do we observe as we look around in this room? We observe that God is the creator 
God, who by His almighty and infinite power created all things in six 24-hour days. Exodus chapter 20 gives us this very explanation as the law was given unto the Israelites. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Well, why? Why must it be kept holy? Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God is not here simply setting forth an example of this is what I did. I labored for six days and then I rested on the seventh day. So therefore you should follow my example. That's not just it, though that is part of it. But but there's more to it than that. It was God's intention to rest on the seventh day. God labored for six days with a view toward enjoying that rest on the seventh day. And so as we're in this room then, fourth commandment, and we see that this room reveals unto us the fact that God created on six days and God rested then on the seventh day, then we face this question, well, what does that mean that God rested. What is rest? Now we have our idea of rest. If we're tired, if we didn't get enough sleep last night, our idea of rest is ceasing from activity. Take a nap. I'm tired. I'm going to rest. But is that rest for God? Did God cease from all activity on the seventh day, was God idle? Is idleness resting? It cannot be. Idleness is forbidden in God's Word. On the seventh day, God did not cease to be active. He is the God who never slumbers nor sleeps. He is the God of constant, ongoing activity. So it cannot mean then that rest is idleness. So what then is rest? If God rested on the seventh day. The idea is this, beloved, to rest is to enter the enjoyment of a finished work. That's rest. For six days, God had toiled and God had labored as God had created the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the seas, the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night. And as God toiled throughout the six days of creation, God was doing this, all of this, with a view toward entering the enjoyment of that finished work. God was still busy on the seventh day. He was busy upholding the heavens and the earth with His fatherly providence, holding and guiding all things in heaven above and on earth below. But on the seventh day that God rested, it means that God delighted in, God enjoyed that work that He had performed on the six days leading up to the seventh day. We might illustrate it with a man who constructs a home. A man labors and a man toils to build that home. He cuts the boards. He screws those boards together. He finishes that home. He labors for a long, hard time to erect that home for his family. But after that man finishes building that home for his family, that man doesn't simply abandon that home. He doesn't leave that home behind and go somewhere else. No, what does the man do? The man enters into the enjoyment of that home. He lives in that home. He is thankful for that home. He appreciates that home. That's the idea here of God on the seventh day resting 
He entered into the enjoyment of His perfect and completed work. That's why, in the first place, God has set apart one day in seven. God tells you, enter into the enjoyment of the finished work. Finished by Jesus Christ Himself. That in the first place is the basis, the pillar, on which rests the fourth commandment. In the second place, closely related to that truth is this. God is a covenant God. God is a God who delights in, enjoys, seeks, pursues, establishes relationships. He's a covenant God within Himself. The Father covenants with the Son. The Son covenants with the Father. And the Spirit is breathed forth as the bond between the Father and the Son. There's a relationship of love within God Himself. And then God, in His almighty love, has been pleased not just to love Himself as the only good God, but God is also pleased to fellowship and love His people. That's God's covenant. He takes His people unto Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that He is their God and they are His people. This truth, I say, is closely related to the first truth. The first truth is that God created in six days and rested. The seventh rest, we said, is entering into the enjoyment of God's finished work. Well, what is it that God enjoys? What what does God delight in? That which God delights in are His people. They are the apple of His eye. They are treasured by Him, bought with the precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it is that God has set apart one day in seven where God comes to His people whom He loves and in whom He delights. And God says unto these people, Come and worship Me. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So what then does God require of us in this Sabbath day? We must be careful here as we seek to understand what the requirements of the fourth commandment are. It takes much sanctified wisdom to know how one is to behave, how they are to conduct themselves on the Sabbath day. Parents understand this full well. The great difficulty of being wise and balanced in having rules for children, but not turning the Sabbath day into an oppressive, wearisome day. It takes great wisdom to know and understand what is the requirement of the Sabbath day. As we think about the requirements here, we do well to understand that there are two extremes that one can fall into in their understanding of the Sabbath day. One extreme is the ditch of legalism. The other ditch with regard to the Sabbath day is the extreme of liberalism. No rules at all. And both ditches, both extremes are to be avoided by the child of God. The struggle against legalism is a struggle that the church has historically had to battle. It's been the temptation of the church and even of communities back when communities were generally Christian 
It was a temptation then to try to legalize keeping the Sabbath day. There were laws about businesses, and all the businesses in town had to be closed on the Sabbath day. Parents would heap up rules about what children may or may not do on the Sabbath day. And then children growing up in that would become critical of other families who, well, their family is allowed to do this on the Sabbath day, but we're not allowed to do that. And then it tends toward Phariseeism, that I must be a good Christian because I'm following all these rules, but those families, that family, they don't follow as strict of rules when it comes to the Sabbath day. History shows that having a long list of rules about keeping the Sabbath day doesn't work. All those rules that were had in communities about closing businesses on the Sabbath day, what have they done? So on the one hand, the ditch of legalism is to be avoided. But on the other hand, there is the other extreme, and just as dangerous, the extreme of liberalism. There's going to be no rules in place about what happens on the Sabbath day. The consistory is not going to require that I diligently frequent the house of God. If you want to come to church, you may come to church. If you don't want to come to church, do as you please. Usually those who lean in this direction will appeal to the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is guiding me and the Spirit is instructing me. And so because the Spirit has taught me to do this or that, well then who are you to argue with me? Both are to be avoided. What is required of us on the Sabbath day? The Heidelberg Catechism helps us understand what God requires on the Sabbath day. And if we may sum up the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, it's, it's this. Fill the day with spiritual, God-glorifying exercises. That's a requirement of the Sabbath day. Fill the Sabbath day with spiritual, God-glorifying exercises. Let the day be so filled with a devotion unto, a seeking of, praying unto, and worship of Jehovah God, that by the end of the day I am exhausted from having so given myself unto the triune God. How do we do this? How do we seek and worship and give praise unto Jehovah God? The Catechism helps us understand here. It says that I, especially on the Sabbath day, that is on the day of rest, diligently frequent the church of God. That's how we worship Him, by coming into His house. And the Catechism says here, frequent the house of God. It doesn't say, come as little as I possibly can come to church. It says, frequent the house as God, as often as possible, I want to be in the house of God. What do we do in the church of God? The catechism goes on to hear His Word. That's what the Christian delights to do on the Sabbath day. The sheep know the voice of the Good Shepherd. They hear that voice and they recognize that the Good Shepherd is addressing them. And the shepherd speaks unto them of his finished work that he has performed on their behalf. How he leads them and guides them into the enjoyment of that finished work that he performed at Calvary. Hear his voice. The catechism goes on. Use the sacraments publicly to call upon the Lord. Prayer. Pray to Him. Contribute to the relief of the poor as becomes a Christian. It's not just the Sabbath, one day of the week, where God requires us to enter into that rest, but all the days of the week. Secondly, 
that all the days of my life I cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord to work by His Holy Spirit in me. Cease from my evil works and yield myself to the Lord. This is the language here of sanctification, of holiness. That's what the Christian seeks to do on the Sabbath, is to be holy. For without holiness, no man will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. Will one enter into the enjoyment of that rest? Will one delight in God and what God has done? The one who walks obstinately in sin cannot enter into the enjoyment of that rest. For without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. You can see then that the Sabbath day is not so much about sitting idly, doing nothing, taking long naps, sleeping the day away. But the Sabbath day is to be filled with spiritual exercises as I seek that covenant fellowship with God. This is difficult difficult work, and it's costly to do this. The history of David in 2 Samuel chapter 24 helps us begin to see what is the cost of worshiping God. 2 Samuel 24 records the sobering account of David's sin. David became proud later on in his life after he had established safety in the land of Canaan, had driven out all the enemies, David became proud. And in David's pride, he wanted to go out and number all of the people of the land of Israel. So he commanded Joab to go out and do that. Joab resisted. Joab recognized that it was unwise of David to go out and do this counting simply to satisfy David's ego. Joab and other counselors advised against it, but David's will prevailed. So Joab went out, took over nine months to go throughout the land of Canaan from the south all the way up to the north. But after nine months of going out and counting the people, he came back and he gave the report unto David. And no sooner had that report been given unto David that David was immediately pricked in his conscience. David knew that he was guilty of being proud. And so immediately David confessed his sin. 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. God gave unto David then three choices. There would be chastisement for this sin. Three choices of what the chastisement would be. David selected the chastisement of a pestilence that would spread throughout the land for three Days. It started immediately on the very first day as the angel of the Lord went throughout Israel. 70,000 people were killed from that pestilence as it went throughout the land. David then sought the Lord, earnestly pleaded with God to stay the angel of the Lord so that this pestilence would not continue raging throughout the land of Canaan. Verse 17, 
David spake unto the Lord when he saw that the angel smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And so then the prophet of the Lord, Gad, called David's seer, the prophet of the Lord came unto David and told David, you have to go to this location, to the home of Aruna, and there you must offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. So David went with his men, their faces cast long and sorrowful as they went out to Mount Moriah, where Aruna lived at. And as Aruna saw David and his men coming unto him, Aruna asked, what is going on here? Why is the king coming unto me? David explained unto him that he had to offer a sacrifice unto the Lord at this location. Aruna, evidently a godly man, offered to give this land unto David. He said, here, David, take this land. You may not only have this land, but I will give you the items that are also necessary for the sacrifice of the Lord. Here's wood that you may have. Here's oxen or sheep that you may have in order to offer a burnt offering unto the Lord. Very generous and commendable of Aruna to make such an offer unto David. But here's what's remarkable about this history. David, when Aruna offered to give unto him the land and all of the things necessary for making this sacrifice, refused it. David said, no. You are not going to give this unto me as a gift. But instead, I will buy it. I'm going to purchase this from you. Verse 24, And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me Nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David would not worship God without that worship costing him something. Who of you would do the same thing? if put in David's shoes? Who of you, if somebody offered to give unto you this gift so that you would not have to pay out of pocket anything, and you could be blessed by that offering, that worship, who of you would be like David and say, no, I am not going to worship God if it doesn't cost me anything. There are some important truths that come out here from this history of David. We see how sin creates a barrier between man and God. It says that David's heart smote him Verse 10, after he had numbered the people, David experienced that displeasure of God upon him. Instead of David entering into the rest, David was troubled in his heart and in his soul. That's what sin does, does it not? And in this text, David's sin was... Pride. Rotten, filthy pride. 
the proud, unrepentant person does not enter into the rest of Jehovah God. Sin creates a barrier. We see from this history that God's justice must be satisfied. There had to be a satisfaction that was made for the sin that had been committed against Jehovah God. It is true that God is the God of great mercy. We read of that even in the 14th verse. David said unto the prophet Gad, I'm in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord for His mercies are great. It is true that God is a God who has compassion, mercy upon His people, but God's mercy does not cancel out God's justice. Justice must be satisfied. And then we see from this account that the satisfaction of God's justice happened in the way of a payment. There had to be payment made in order for God's wrath to be appeased. Aruna's generosity, his willingness to give unto David the land and the altar there is commendable, but it wouldn't suffice. David had to pay. David had to offer of his own self unto the Lord. And here we see David as a type and a picture of Jesus Christ. Pointing us unto the one who offered up himself for our sins. You see, the starting point in asking the question of what is the cost of worship is not asking what does it cost you or me. That's not the starting point in speaking about the cost of worship. But the starting point in facing this matter of the cost of worship is this. What did it cost God. It cost God His only begotten Son so that you can enter into the enjoyment of the finished work of Calvary. That's the cost to God. Now David serves as an example unto us, teaching us about how we worship the Lord. Jesus opened up the way unto the Father. But that does not take away the duty, the calling that God gives unto you and me to labor, to enter into the rest. Hebrews 4, verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. You see, the account of David here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is not just an isolated example that stands by itself of the cost of worship. But instead, what we have here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 is one of many Different examples given in Scripture of the cost of worshiping Jehovah God. Go all the way back to the beginning. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. Think of Abraham. By faith, Abraham offered up his only son. Think of all throughout the Old Testament how the priests were not permitted to enter into that most holy place except they come with 
sacrifice. They did not enter except with blood. It cost them. The rich had to give. The rich were called to give a lamb without blemish. And if you were too poor to be able to afford the lamb without blemish, then a pair of turtle doves or a pair of pigeons would suffice. The rich gave and the poor gave. All throughout history, God's people gave. Worship is not first and foremost about what I derive out of this worship service. Worship is not first and foremost about my feelings, my affirmation, my acceptance, my being beloved by everybody else. But worship is about giving unto Jehovah God. We give to Jehovah God. Not in order to appease the wrath of an angry God, but we give because His Son, Jesus Christ, has already appeased His wrath. We give unto the Lord, not to stop the spread of the pestilence throughout the land, but we give unto the Lord Because His Son has removed the spiritual pestilence and curse that is rightly due unto us. We worship because we are thankful. And so we give. The Catechism teaches us that we maintain the church and the school when the plate is passed, we give freely out of the abundance of what God has given us. We give not just financially, but we give of our time. And that starts already on Saturday night, does it not? If I'm going to be engaged in the worship service on Sunday, alert and attentive to the Word of God, if I'm going to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and love that voice, if my head is nodding off the whole service long because I'm too tired, then we ought to consider getting to bed earlier on Saturday night. I give. Not just money, Not just time, but it's also abilities. God has given a range, a variety of abilities in the church of Jesus Christ. And we need those abilities. We depend on brethren and sisters in the church all to give and to work toward the edification of God's church on this earth. And so we use those abilities for the service of the church on this earth. Various committees that are set up for the establishment and maintenance of the church. The evangelism committee. If God has given us abilities in that regard, we give in that way. The nursery committee. Catering committee. Sunday school. Building committee. All the other committees that God or rather that the consistory has set up for the maintenance of the congregation, we give. We commit to heart the thought of David's words. I will not worship God except it cost me. I will pay. I will give unto the Lord. And in so doing, God blesses His people. They are joyful. The Catechism speaks of the joy that we have as we yield ourselves unto the Lord. 
at the very end of answer 103, and thus begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. That's the joy that God gives unto us already now on this earth that we can begin to enter or to begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. The eternal Sabbath is a reference to heaven. It's when God will wipe all tears away from our eyes, when there will be no sickness, no sorrow, no pain, but God gives unto us perfect joy in heaven. That's what the Christian has his eyes on. And that's what the Christian longs for is that day when he can be with God and the church triumphant in heaven. But already on this earth, God is pleased to give unto us to begin that eternal Sabbath. It certainly isn't the fulfillment of the eternal Sabbath. We aren't going to enjoy all of the blessings that God has in store for us, but God gives unto us a beginning of enjoying that eternal Sabbath. And so as we come to God's house on the Sabbath day, and as we hear the Word of the Lord proclaimed unto us, as we publicly call upon the name of the Lord and contribute to the relief of the poor, God gives us, as it were, a glimpse into the glories of heaven. God begins to pull back the curtain so that with the eyes of faith we can see this is what heaven will be like unto. God's people gathered together in sweet communion, enjoying the light of God's countenance as they fellowship with their Lord and their Savior, Jesus Christ. Who would not want to enter into the enjoyment of God's rest. Oh, how we love the Sabbath day. More and more, as we go through this earthly pilgrimage, we yearn to enter into the rest that God has for us. Certainly there is development, growth in this area, For young children who do not yet fully understand the weariness and the emptiness and vanity of this earth. For the youth, there is still that temptation to cling to the things of this world. To view the Sabbath day as burdensome. A day where I'm not allowed to have any fun. But as God works in us, spiritual maturity and development over the years, more and more the Christian comes to see the wonder of the Sabbath day. A single day in God's courts is better than a thousand apart from God. Amen. Let us